Pipe perched atop 250 tons of the most explosive substance in the world, waves his flare. Sparks shower down around him, bouncing off barrel lids. Drop your weapons, or it's all over! Everyone freezes for a moment, a collective intake of breath as they stand at the brink of the precipice. Mina's heart sinks, because she knows he's right. It really is over. Even the cultists of the Great Machine, fanatics that they are, would never risk utter destruction of their sacred machine, along with themselves and who knows how many of the citizens above. They've lost, and Uma Jukti's pipe runners have won. A cultist, clad in resplendent cloth of gold and silver, strides through the crowd, bearing a cog-headed staff of bronze. Machine cultists part, bowing their heads and muttering, as he passes. I am the mystery and the majesty manifest, the avatar Karnis, the living voice of the machine, he calls out. I am become the sacred mechanism, and I say, better to embrace oblivion than to suffer the tyranny of the flesh. Slay the defilers, my machine brothers and sisters. Slay all who would dare defile the great machine. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, we learned that the visitor was called Valerian, and ran with a crew led by the spider in an HQ in an abandoned opera house. The crew, it seems, have lost track of Mina, and as a result, are going to war. Watch this space. Meanwhile, Mina, having snuck into the Sanctum Miruptio in search of the infernal powder, discovers the pipe runners have somehow made it inside ahead of her. She finds herself caught up in an all-out war between the cult of the Great Machine and the pipe runners, with the very existence of the city at stake. Well, here we go. This is the big one. Time to find out what happens when you tie two sets of rabid rats in a sack along with a big red button marked BOOM. The stakes here should not be underestimated. Not even considering the dangers of the combat itself, if things go poorly here, there's a real risk that this encounter ends in a detonation that kills Mina and everyone else. This really could be the end. I envisage this scene having a lot of participants. Perhaps 40-odd cultists and 30 or so pipe runners, plus their bosses. And, contrary to what I said previously about handling background NPC combat as window dressing, I actually want to play this combat scene out in full this time. Clearly, I'm not going to run 70-plus separate combatants, so how's this going to work? Well, 
The squad template from page 466 of the Advanced 5e Monstrous Menagerie is going to be doing the heavy lifting for me here. Basically, that template applied to a base monster, in this case Cultist and Bandit, is going to allow me to split my 70-odd combatants into seven units, each acting as a separate creature. A lot more manageable. I'm also going to use the NPC tactics rules that I first trialled way back in Chapter 1 in order to inject some additional unpredictability and variety to my combatants' actions. I've added the details of that system in the show notes. Okay, enough preamble. I've rolled for initiative. Let battle commence, and let the dice fall where they may. If it's oblivion you seek... Then that is what you'll receive, the pipe runner yells, bringing his hatchet down once, twice, splintering the barrel lid. Mina dashes to the handrail, looking down some forty feet and out towards the middle of the cylindrical silo, raising her crossbow. Time slows as the end of everything she knows approaches with seeming inevitability. She can see the red markings of the pipe runner's oilskins, marking him as some sort of leader, perhaps. She can see the bright red powder inside the shattered barrel and the sparks from the flare as it descends inexorably towards its target. She watches, helpless, as her crossbow bolt releases with a puff of dust and sails towards her target, only to bounce harmlessly off his icosahedron helmet. That distraction is just enough to stave off disaster. Before the pipe runner has a chance to thrust the flare into the powder, the sanctus rings with an uncanny note, as if from some eldritch pipe organ. Mina turns and sees the revered one striding forward, his staff of bronze held high. It crackles with arcane power. You were in my place of power, intruder. Here, I control the sacred conduits. As he speaks, ridged steel cables snake out from between the barrels, wrapping around the pipe runner captain's legs, torso and arms, fixing him rigidly in place. He roars in fury, but he cannot break free. Barbican, get that flare! Mina yells, and without hesitation, her faithful companion springs over the handrail, arcing out into space. He comes down in a perfect three-point landing with a crash that splinters more barrel lids. It rises smoothly and snatches the still-blazing flare from the captain's outstretched hand. All around them, the battle is being joined. From her vantage point on the uppermost catwalk, Mina can see cultists spreading out in both directions from the doors, fighting their way around the circumference of the huge cylindrical chamber towards this twin set of stairs that lead down opposite sides of the silo to the lower walkway and then again to the chamber floor. A group of pipe runners take up a defensive position on the lower catwalk at the base of the left set of stairs laying down a withering barrage of crossbow fire at any cultists trying to descend. Other defenders leap from the lower walkway, following their captain to the tops of the barrels below and close in on Barbican. Their intent is obvious. But it is a third group that catches Mina's eye as she works furiously to crank and reload her crossbow, Holding back from the battle, these pipe runners appear to be engaged in some sort of mystic ritual, chanting strange words, one of which Mina catches over the echoing clanging of boots on steel and the screams of the dying. Jukti. With her concentration split, Mina is only dimly aware of the unfolding battle. She fires into the scrum of pipe runner crossbowmen on the lower level, giving the cultist leader the opportunity to descend the stairs and blast several of their number from the walkway, steam and scalding oil exploding from the pipes in the wall behind them. His followers come howling down the stairs, knives flashing. 
on the barrels below, the pipe runners close in on the stationary Barbican, who is standing with the flare in one metal hand, awaiting further orders. Realising that asking him to snuff the thing out is likely to be asking more of a simple-minded creation than he is able to give, Mina instead yells out, Run, Barbican! Keep the flare safe! And he's off, ducking, weaving and sprinting away from his attackers. But she has no time to congratulate herself. The ritual reaches a crescendo, and behind the spellcasters a section of the wall freezes over, only to shatter instants later in a shower of ice. Urujukti, frost covering one arm, steps through the jagged portal and surveys the battlefield. Must I do everything myself? She snarls and raises her hand as she sends a frigid blast clear across the width of the silo. It strikes a large group of cultists who are instantly encased in ice, the weight of it causing the walkway to creak alarmingly. The Uma is here. Slay the traitor. The revered one cries, and several of his followers race around the walkway towards her, heedless of the defenders that stand in their way. Several fall, but such is the single-minded ferocity of the assault that a number break through and hurl themselves at Jukti, blades raised. She falls back with a furious shriek, arms raised defensively, and a swirl of mist and snow surrounds her momentarily. When the flurry dissipates, she's gone, just an instant before Mina, from her vantage point on high, can get a bead on her. The battle rages on, cultists and pipe runners fighting desperately for the upper hand. Barbican leaps between the stacks of barrels, continuing to remain just one step ahead of his pursuers. And throughout it all, Mina holds her shot, waiting. Come on, she mutters to herself, show yourself. Her patience is rewarded. Jukti reappears in a flurry of snow on the far side of the chamber, alone on the lower walkway. Her hands are raised as she cries out, Rise, my servant! Rise and slay the revered one! There are screams from the base of the left-hand walkway as something massive and moving begins to tear itself from the ice that had engulfed the cultists. Time to put a stop to this right now. But even as Mina pulls the trigger, she knows she's missed. By chance or by premonition, Jukti turns out of the path of the bolt in the same instant it's released, and it punches into the wall behind her. The old woman follows the trajectory back and spots Mina looking down at her from the walkway above and opposite. Despite Mina's disguise, Jukti's eyes narrow. You! I see you, girl! I see your hand in this! Exquisite shall be your death screams! To the right of the chamber, the cultists are gaining ground, the sheer savagery of their attack pressing the defenders back. But to the left, Jukti's creature tears itself free and stands revealed, a massive, four-legged creature of reptilian appearance, fashioned of animated ice. It roars, then lunges at the cultist leader. His followers, some singing the praises of their great machine, hurl themselves selflessly into the creature's path, but even these acts of sacrifice cannot prevent the massive tail from sideswiping him. The blow knocks him off his feet and nearly knocks him clear off the walkway. Several of his followers are not so lucky. But the cult leader has magics of his own. Come to me, my mechanical minions, he cries, scrambling back, still clinging to his staff. Defend your one true voice. From hidden alcoves set into the chamber wall, Segmented, worm-like constructions of brass and steel burst forth, landing on the ice drake's back and driving steel spikes into it. The creature roars again, thrashing in pain. Up above, Mina is not deterred. 
I see you too, witch, she yells as she reloads her crossbow and fires at Jukti again. This time, the bolt flies true, catching the old woman in the stomach, but the reaction is not what she had expected. With a howl of pain, Jukti begins to convulse, and with a whine and cracking of pressurised ice, something begins to emerge from her ring. I'll kill you, kill you, kill you! Jukti shrieks, clearly in agony, thrashing and flailing madly as a perfect ice replica of her emerges from the ring. The true Jukti slumps to her knees, and with a mad smile slowly spreading on her face, she points up at Mina. Kill, she whispers to her simulcrum. The remaining cultists, to the right of the chamber, have completely overrun their opponents, slaughtering them to a man, and now they leap out onto the barrels, closing with the pipe runners who have finally managed to corner the elusive Barbican. Seeing this from the far side of the chamber, the cult leader commands some of his followers to do the same. If that man is captured and the pounder detonated, the machine will be destroyed. I will do my best to keep their captain restrained. The remainder of his retinue, along with the bronze drones, continue their furious assault on the ice drake as the catwalk starts to come away from the wall. But the beast brushes their attacks aside, pouncing on the revered one and sinking icy fangs into his shoulder. He cries out in pain and the cog-headed staff drops from numb fingers. Instantly, the pipes binding the pipe runner captain on the barrels go limp, falling away from him. Finally, the captain says, rolling heavily muscled shoulders as he draws a sword and dagger from their scabbards. Time to end this. He glances up as, above him, Ice Jukti arcs through the air on a jet of ice and smashes with deafening impact into the upper walkway where the sniper had been standing. That's the organ grind they're taking care of. Captain grins, moving after Barbican. Now, let's take care of that damned monkey. Whew, time to take a breath after all that excitement. As ever, things played out very differently than I'd expected in that combat. One unpredictable event followed another, which, of course, is just the way I want it. As an example, we had four separate summonings in that scene, where I hadn't anticipated any. In part, we have the NPC Actions tool to thank for that. First, as a result of an NPC twist action, specifically Reinforce, we had Jukti appear, which really ramped up the stakes. Then she, in turn, used the last of her ring's charges to summon a Guard Drake from Volo's Guide to Monsters, reskinned by me to match her icy theme. Then, again, as a result of a reinforce role, my cult fanatic summoned three of the bronze scouts we first met in the tunnel beneath the blood pits. And finally, Jukti used her once-per-day Conjure Fey ability from the Archfey Warlock stat block to summon an Ice Maiden, which I found in Tome of Beasts by Cobalt Press. In case you're interested in how I picked the Drake and the Ice Maiden, well, it's very simple, really, each summoning ability gave a maximum challenge rating, or CR, of the creature that would be summoned. So in the case of the Drake, that was CR2, or for the Ice Maiden, CR6. I plugged that CR into Cobbled Fight Club Plus, the link's in the show notes, and then tinkered with some levers and dials, and picked the first thing that jumped out and yelled, Pick me! Best not to overthink for this sort of stuff. Things very nearly ended before they even began, though. I decided, before I rolled initiative, that it would take the Piper and a Captain around to smash open a barrel 
and then another round to insert the flare and detonate the powder. That meant that taking him out with his meaty 65 starting hit points was a top priority. And who rolled highest in the initiative order? Well, the captain, of course. It was a stroke of incredible luck that the voice of the machine was able to successfully cast Hold Person on him, and that Barbican was then able to disarm the captain and keep the flare safe for as long as he did. If the dice had not been kind on round one, that whole battle, and this entire podcast series, could have come to a screeching halt right there. And make no mistake, if the dice dictate it, that's what will happen. We're not out of the woods yet, not by a long chalk. The other thing to mention is that this is a huge battle. Just check the mechanics in the show notes if you want a taste of just how huge. Keeping track of all those combatants got really tricky for me after a while, and by round two, I had little diagrams of my cylindrical battlefield on the go to help me keep tabs on where everyone was. I hope it's not too confusing to keep track of this in the story. Anyway, regardless of the scale of the fight, combat in 5e D&D is typically expected to last around three rounds, maybe up to four or five at a push. Well, in this battle, with the high participant count to begin with, and then the near constant summoning going on, we're already at round four, with plenty of combatants still in the fight. Things seem to be going quite well for Mina for a while. The cultists seem to be dominating, and the immediate risk of the Big Bang was averted, but Jukti and her summoning has really turned the tides of this thing. The cult leader is severely wounded and the dangerous captain is now free. Barbican is cornered and a deadly new combatant has entered the fray in the form of the Ice Maiden. Things are looking pretty grim for Mina. Did she survive that impact? Can the tide be turned? Well, there's only one way to find out. I men a very dance, Tin Man, but it's over now. Your mistress is dead, we've got you surrounded, and you're backed up to the edge and out of room. Now, give me that flare. The captain lunges forward, grappling with Barbican for possession of the sparking flare, and his men rush in to assist him. Before Barbican can leap down from the stack of barrels, the flare is torn from his grasp. Now have it, the captain cries. Uma Jukti, your will be done. He turns back for the smashed barrel, the exposed powder. The revered one, badly wounded and clinging to the teetering walkway with the drake's fangs deep in his shoulder, snatches up his staff as it goes sliding past him. With the last of his strength, he tries to bind the captain once more, but the pain is too great. The cables rise, swaying feebly and wrap around the captain's ankles, but he is easily able to tear himself free. Jukti drags herself back to her feet, clinging on to the handrail. You failed, revered one, she cackles. My forces are victorious. I am victorious. But above the melee, the icy mists clear to reveal Mina lying amidst iced rubble, battered and bruised, but very much alive. Her disguise is gone, smashed by the impact, but her crossbow is cocked and loaded, and aimed directly at the pipe runner queen. Famous last words, Grand Duchess, she says, and fires. The bolt enters through the eye and punches straight out of the back of Chukti's skull. The old woman totters in place for a moment, mouth open in a look of utter astonishment. Her skin begins to shrivel and dry, and then she collapses in a clatter of bones, desiccated flesh sloughing away into a fine dust. Her ring hits the metal walkway and bounces along it with a clear ding, 
ding, ding. In the frozen beat that follows, Barbican bursts free, tossing pipe runners aside like ragdolls. He hurls himself onto the captain's back and wrenches the flare from his grip, eliciting a ragged cheer from the cultists. Atop the barrels, they renew their assault on the beleaguered pipe runners. Once above, on a walkway that is barely hanging onto the wall, cultists fall on the rapidly melting ice drake in a frenzy, desperate to save their feared leader. Even in its death throes, it remains intent upon his destruction, and only the suicidal bravery of one of the cultists, who leaps from the catwalk to seize the creature by the hind legs and pull it over the side, saves the voice of the machine from certain death. Above them all, Mina clambers to her feet, brushing shattered ice from her hair and coat. The dead far outnumber the living now, and those that still do live carry bloody evidence of their struggle. The remaining combatants are exhausted, many ready to drop. Time to bring this to a close. If she can take down the captain, she is sure the remaining pipe runners will surrender. She is about to fire her crossbow again, when a chill wind begins to whip around her ankles. It rises swiftly in intensity, twisting faster and faster around her, whipping chunks of ice around in an accelerating vortex of arctic wind. Oh, sh! Mina starts to say, but the words are stolen from her lips by the howling, blinding wind. A wind that darkens and begins to take on form. Umajukti's face, some twenty feet high, emerges from the gale, her mouth a black and yawning void. My revenge, she shrieks. I will have my revenge. Ice is slamming into Mina now, impact after impact, and she realises that even if that doesn't kill her, she's going to get blown clear off this ledge. With the crossbow in one hand, she grips the bent and twisted handrail, grimacing at the pain as her feet are blown out from under her, and she finds herself perpendicular to the ground, hanging on for grim death. And she knows she can't hang on much longer. She is not dead, the captain bellows, hacking his way through three cultists and sending three more scuttling back. The Uma is eternal. Fight on for the Uma. Behind him, his men are lifted, redoubling their efforts, fighting like men possessed. But the voice of the machine has regained his feet, and he lifts his staff once more, which burns with blue fire. I say delay, he roars, slamming the haft of the staff down with a sonorous note that reverberates through the chamber. The flexing steel pipes burst from between the barrels once more, wrapping around the captain, locking him in place. No, not again, he cries, but his struggles are in vain. Fight on! Slay them in the name of the Uma! Destroy it all! Seeing her moment, Mina forces her feet back into the full fury of the gale, then uses its power to spring up and into the air, crossbow shouldered. At the very apex of her leap, she aims and fires at the stationary target below, the bolt punching into his chest. Even as she does so, the cultists fall upon the helpless captain, stabbing and hacking furiously until he falls limp. If Mina had hoped for quarter for the remaining pipe runners, she is disappointed though she has no time to dwell upon that fact. She lands and hits the barrels hard, rolling twice and coming to a dazed stop, just in time to see the howling form of Ice Jukti leaping after her from the platform. The creature of frozen wind slams into her, pounding her with blow after icy blow, shrieking and sobbing, You've stolen it! You've stolen my revenge! But the blows are weakening, the wind is abating, and the features are growing blurry, indistinct. Power the ring afforded her, it seems it cannot be sustained long without a living, breathing host. 
The voice, too, is growing weaker until it is barely a whisper on the wind. It was all I had left. She sighs. She's gone. The battle is done. So, two more rounds of combat and everything went back and forth and back again. Just like Chukti, I was never sure if I was on the verge of victory or utter disaster in that scene. And things turned, to some extent, on Mina's expert marksmanship. The shot that killed Jukti started out as a miss, that I burned a hero point to re-roll and I was rewarded with a critical hit. That was a hands-in-the-air woohoo moment for me, I don't mind admitting. I figured that with Jukti's death, that was the end of the summoned ice creatures, but I thought I'd check with the GM. And even though I rated this a sure thing, I drew three no-cards from the Mythic deck, and so the Drake and the Ice Maiden fought on, powered by the evil sentience within the Ring of Winter. Not for long, though. I figured I would have to make a constitution save at the end of each of their turns to keep going. The Drake was killed before it reached that point, and after giving Mina one hell of a pounding, the Ice Maiden failed her very first check. From a mechanical perspective, that was about the most complicated battle I've ever run in 5e, either solo or in a group game. At times it had me wondering if I'd bitten off more than I could chew, but ultimately I think it mostly worked pretty well. It is a good opportunity to take a step back and focus on some lessons learned though. Firstly, I think I need to tweak the NPC tactics table a bit. Some of the tactics work very well, but some didn't really make much sense in the fiction or were hard to apply. If I find the time, I'm going to create a revised model. Secondly, I think there was a really important element missing from that battle. The environment. I tried to include elements of that, such as the added tension of the walkway coming away from the wall, but really that was just narrative fluff. It wasn't really supported by the mechanics. Every good GM knows that the environment is almost like a character in itself in a combat scene, and is a huge factor in keeping combat exciting. In traditional RPGs like D&D, the assumption is that the GM will remember to include environmental changes and challenges in their encounters, but it is a bit more tricky to do in a solo game. So I think I'm going to take a leaf from the Sentinel Comics RPG that a good friend is running for my Friday night gaming group. In that game, the environment has a place in the initiative order just like all of the other participants, and each round the environment takes a turn. This mechanic is taken from a similar mechanic in the card game upon which the RPG is based, Sentinels of the Multiverse, and it works surprisingly well. In fact, having experienced it, what's most surprising is that such an obvious mechanic is not ubiquitous in RPGs. It makes the battlefield dynamic, and it can positively or negatively impact either the PCs or their enemies. It really does keep things interesting. So, between now and my next combat scene, I'm going to have a think about the best way to implement this idea. Third, I really loved how the advanced 5e squad template let me increase the scale of this encounter. A great addition to my toolkit and one I will be definitely coming back to, I'm sure. My final takeaway is this. Although the story warranted such an epic battle, it was pretty hard work to run. Usually the mechanical parts of each scene take very little time, but that battle took ages quicker by far than if there'd been players around the table, of course, but it did become a bit of an endurance test after a while. I'll be keeping the scale smaller for combat scenes in future, I think, unless there's something absolutely cataclysmic going on. So, as it turns out, 
we get to continue with Mina's story, at least for now. Let's not forget that the brave allies she is currently surrounded by are in fact demented terrorist fanatics who not so long ago were intent upon dissembling her and feeding her fluids to their giant machine god. Let's see how that works out for her next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.